Not quite sure how you follow up that uh, introduction, but I uh, just want to say thank you to Chris and Patience uh, for the way that they have loved and cared for us, and to all of you as our Cross Creek family. It is uh, an incredibly difficult decision that we have made uh, to leave friends and family, uh, but we believe that this is where God is leading us. Uh, we feel a call on our lives to be engaged in full-time ministry, uh, especially for me, having grown up in California, I really feel a call uh, out there to an area where the gospel really um, is almost as an unreached people group um, because there are so many um, people out there that just are antagonistic towards the gospel. And even as we were driving around when we went out there for a visit a couple of weeks ago, Kristen looked at me and said, where are all the churches? And I said, it's California. There are no churches. This is, this is kind of the deal. This is why, we're, why I feel like we are called here because um, they need the gospel just the same as you and I do. Um, and so, um, as Chris said, it'll be a couple more weeks before we leave, but uh, incredibly bittersweet for us, incredibly difficult to say goodbye, but also incredibly exciting and, and moving forward in the knowledge that God has led us here um, and God is taking us there. And Kristen has not left me. Uh, she's actually at home with some sick kids today. So um, she's totally on board with this decision. Very supportive. Obviously, um, a little bit more difficult for her because her family's here, but she's just home with some sick kids today. So uh, that is why you did not see her. But uh, let's uh, enough about me and let's let's talk about God a little bit. So uh, that's a conversation that I enjoy having much more than than talking about myself. So let's turn to Second Samuel four as we continue our series here in Second um, Samuel, looking through as we have come through First Samuel and have, have looked at the life of David and now are moving into the later stages of, of David's uh, kingship and ministry within the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And so uh, we're going to look at Second Samuel 4. But uh, as I like to do before we get started, let's pray. And I would ask that uh, as I pray out loud up here that you would pray with me silently. And just ask that God would open up your heart, open up your mind, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and show you what it is that he has for you today. Because I believe that this isn't just an exercise in me standing up here talking, but I believe that that God has something for each one of us to be able to take and move outside of these doors and to apply it to our lives across the next couple of days. So as I pray out loud up here, let's all pray together that God would speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for the way that you lead and guide us and sometimes it is hard and sometimes you take us through uh, decisions and and through things that are difficult and sometimes we have to trust you and so I pray right now that you would open up our hearts and minds father that you would bring us to a place of reliance on you I pray that you would speak to us this morning I pray that you would move me out of the way Lord I pray that you would empty me of myself and that your Holy Spirit would come and that your Holy Spirit would speak. I pray that you would open our hearts. Allow us to be people that are open to what it is that you have to say. And not just to hear that, Lord. But to be able to take that and then apply that to our lives. So that we don't just have something that we do on Sunday mornings. But it's, it's something that actually makes a difference in our lives. And so I pray that you would work in us. Even now, Lord. I pray that you would speak. Speak to our hearts. And now, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. All right, Second Samuel 4. 
And I think part of the reason why Chris asked me to preach this morning is because he didn't want to read through this chapter with all these hard words. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how we go. I practiced a little bit, but uh, it gets a little dodgy here. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all of Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of the raiding bands. One was named Banna and the other Rechab. They were the sons of Roman, the Berothite, from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gidom and lived there as aliens to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Banna, the sons of Rimen, the Berothite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by the way of Araba. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. And David answered Rechab and his brother Banna, the sons of Remen, the Berothite, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Now, some nice uplifting reading for a, a Sunday morning. And that's one of those passages as a preacher that you read through and you go. All right. So some guys murdered somebody and then they got murdered for their murder. And what exactly am I supposed to do with this? But hopefully we can see that David was trusting in God and how that sort of dictated and ordered his whole entire life. And so. As we look through this and as we spend some time, we can we can see that this story sort of plays into a larger picture, a larger context of David's entire life and how David trusted in God. In the summer of 2001, I flew out to Colorado and worked as a counselor at a summer camp. It's pretty incredible. I lived in a teepee most of the summer, had a bunch of little eight to ten year olds that came in, cycled in every week. I cooked on a campfire. It was awesome. One of my favorite things to do was climb on this giant rock wall that we had there. But of course, before you can climb on the rock wall, you have to put all the safety equipment on and all the harnesses and everything and, and get all geared up for that. And so as we're going through counselor training week at the very beginning of the summer, all of the counselors had to go through this training time where they showed us how to how to properly use all of the ropes and harnesses and all the different things. And basically, if you're not familiar with it, the process of holding the rope for someone as they climb up the, the rock wall is called belaying. 
And so you belay someone as they go up there. And so they're teaching us how to do this. And so we're all standing there in a line and they're like, everybody, everybody get a partner. So I turn and I'm like, I don't know what we're doing. So I just picked this guy, Jerome. So Jerome was this fun guy. He was, he was cool. He's a good friend of mine. And we became great friends over the summer. But so I picked Jerome. Now, Jerome and I, if you were to stand us side by side, we, we did not really look anything alike. Jerome's nickname, one of the nicknames that he got over the summer was Shrek. And so you kind of get the picture of what Jerome looked like. He was sort of, he was shorter than I was, but he, he probably weighed at least two times as much as me, maybe three times as much as me. And so we're going through this whole thing. And so I climb up, you know, they, they teach us how to do the whole thing. I climb up and down the rock wall. No problem. Jerome's at the bottom as my anchor. Well, then they're like, okay, now you need to switch. I'm like, um, do you see what that dude looks like? I don't know. And the, the instructor was like, no, 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 this is great. Now, see, anybody can belay anybody. This is not a problem. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen if he falls? And he's like, no, this is how you do this. And so he was all, the instructor was all excited that he got to use this, this new technique to show us how somebody that wasn't the same size could belay somebody that was bigger than them. And so we get all hooked up and we get all the ropes and everything. And basically what the deal was is there was another guy that's supposed to stand behind me and hold on to me so that if something happens and Jerome falls, then I hold on to the rope. This guy holds on to me. And so then the two of us are then the anchor. And so you have a good anchor point. So you're like, oh, well, yeah, okay, this works. So we draft a guy to come stand behind us. And so off Jerome goes and he goes up the wall. So he climbs up to the top and everything's fine and, and we're doing good. And he starts coming back down and he's coming back down. And he gets about 15 feet off the ground and he slips and he falls. And he wasn't really a quiet guy either. He was pretty noisy. And so he was a little dramatic. And so as soon as he slips and falls, the first thing he does is scream. And then the next thing he does as he begins descending. So I don't know if you're familiar with this at all, but basically you have this sort of it's a round circle that the rope goes through that, that's tied on to your harness as you are the person that's holding them. And so you're, you're doing the rope. And the first thing that you're supposed to do when they fall that they teach you is to lock it down like this behind you. So that's what I do. Jerome falls immediately and I lock it down. The problem was the guy that was standing behind me that was supposed to hold on to me wasn't holding on to me and wasn't paying attention. So we do the whole cartoon thing where as Jerome is... Zooming down, I take off and shoot up. So I'm shooting up. So now I'm screaming too. So Jerome's screaming and I'm screaming as we are passing each other. And there's like 25 people standing around. And at the last second, the guy that was supposed to be holding on jumps up, grabs a hold of my harnesses and, and barely catches me. And Jerome stops. I mean, he literally was about this far off the ground when he stopped. So now there's a guy holding me like this. I'm in the air about 10 feet and Jerome is off the ground. So now three things happen. One, both of us stopped screaming because we finally realized, oh, we're not going to die. Secondly, everybody behind us can no longer stand up because they're laughing so hard because this is clearly the most hilarious. I mean, are you kidding me? Who's ever seen this before? And the instructor, complete and total deadpan, like, no reaction, no anything. So you've got this picture in front of you and he's standing here and he looks at me and he goes, good job. You didn't let go. 
I'm like, what option did I have? I'm 10 feet in the air right now. What what was I going to do? And so we get everybody all untangled and everything. And I'm like looking at the guy and I'm like, oh, and he's like, well, no, I wasn't really paying attention. I'm like, oh, yeah, no kidding. I'm like, you had one job, one job, but he didn't do it. And so basically what I kind of learned from this and, and what I think we can see this morning is that it doesn't matter how skillful your execution is. If the thing that you're putting your trust in is the wrong thing. And so I did everything correctly. I did everything right. I did everything that I was supposed to do, everything that I was taught. But I was putting my trust in the guy that was standing behind me. And I was putting my trust in the wrong thing. And this is what we see here. Where we see there are a couple of people. Ishbosheth, Rechab, Banna, who all had... Decent execution. They did decent things. They made good plans, but they were putting their trust in something other than God. And so it didn't really work out for them. And then we see the contrast with David. And we see where David, instead of putting his trust in worldly things, instead of putting his trust in all of these other things, we understand that David put his trust in God. Now, for us to fully, completely understand this whole picture, I think we need a little bit of context before we dive all the way into the story. So first we understand, and we hopefully are familiar with David. David, now, at this point, we've come all the way through 1 Samuel, we're into 2 Samuel, and David has now, Saul and Jonathan have been killed. David has now been anointed as king of Judah, which is sort of the southern tribes of the kingdom of Israel. So you have Judah in the south, and you have Israel in the north. The tribes of Israel in the north stayed loyal to Saul. And so his son, Ishbosheth, becomes anointed king there. And so there becomes sort of a civil war that's now going on. And so there's a civil war between the armies of people that are loyal to David from the south. And they are led by the general Joab. And then you have the people who are in the north who are loyal to Ishbosheth, which is the house of Saul, which is sort of the way that the natural um, progression of who the king would have been should be and they're looking at um abner as their general and so this is sort of how all of this is is going on and so as we ended um this chapter three joab the general for david has killed abner the general for ishbosheth and ishbosheth now knows and recognizes that he is in a lot of trouble because now we see ishbosheth he was trusting In another person, the same way that I was trusting in the guy behind me to hold on to me, to keep me from flying up in the air and causing this giant catastrophe. This guy, Ishbosheth, was trusting in Abner. He had put all his all his eggs in the Abner basket. And and for decent, decently good reason. I mean, we see and we understand that Abner was a skilled general. He was very good at war. He was an excellent fighter. He was somebody that that was. Um, skilled in in policy. He was somebody that was skilled in in the idea of politics and all of these things, skilled in diplomacy. He was the one that was able to sort of finagle some things with David and all of these things. But what we also see is that he really only followed God kind of half-heartedly. He didn't really put his full trust in God. He didn't follow him all the way. He, He followed God when it was sort of convenient for him and when it sort of worked out. But he wasn't somebody that we would look at his life and say, Abner was completely committed to God. And so this is the person that Ishbosheth has sort of placed his his faith in. And now that this person is gone, Ishbosheth has nothing. He's stuck. 
He didn't have faith in God. He didn't have faith in anybody else. He's got nothing. And so everything he had was in the Abner basket. And now he's lost. He doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know where to turn. And so as a result of putting his, his trust in another human being is the result of putting his trust in Abner. We now see what ends up happening is he loses the confidence of these people, the very people that are supposed to be loyal to him. And he ends up being murdered in his own palace in a time and a place where he should have been as safe as he possibly could be. So Ishbosheth placed his trust in a human being and it didn't work out for him. Then we see Rechab and Bana. And they were two soldiers that basically were opportunistic and greedy. They saw an opportunity for them to get ahead. They saw that Ishbosheth was somebody that was now weak because of the loss of Abner. They saw that they had a chance to get in good with this King David. They knew that once Abner was out of the way, that David's army was going to come north and was going to take over everything. And David was going to be the new king. And so they saw a chance to get it, get in good with him. And so they decided that they were willing to act on this and to get ahead and to do whatever it take. And so they did this. They create this plan that, hey, this is what we're going to do. And the interesting thing is that they're there of all the people. And we sort of get this outline You're reading through this and you're saying, OK, why did they explain so much about who their sons were and what tribe they were from and all of these things? Well, these are the people that were of the people of Saul. So these are the people of anybody that should have been the most loyal to Ishbosheth. They are the people that should have been the people who absolutely would pledge their undying loyalty to him. And yet they are the people that decide to betray him and decide to move forward. And so they create this plan and they have this idea, but they're not following God. They say they are. But the only time that God's name is mentioned is not in the forming of the plan. And it's interesting as you read through first and second Samuel, you see all the time where The writer will say something like, and David inquired of the Lord, should I go up? And David asked of the Lord, should I go here? And David asked of the Lord, will you give me success if I do this? And all throughout the book, you see David asking of the Lord. There's no asking of the Lord with Rechab and Banna. They just make a plan. They go and execute it. And then they come to David and they say, oh, yeah, this is. Oh, yeah. God totally told us to do this. Yeah. No. He was he was definitely part of the plan. They act godly because it suits them and it helps them to manipulate the situation and it helps them to get ahead. But it's not really what they were actually doing. They were relying on their own talent, their own skills, their own abilities, and they were successful at doing it. They they executed the plan that they put together. But at the end of the day, because they didn't see God's face. Because they didn't ask God what God wanted and didn't and they just decided to act on their own. What ended up happening to them? Well, hey, you kill the king. You're going to get killed. It's kind of how it worked in those days. And so they come to David and they get executed for murdering Ishbosheth. So we see these people. You have Ishbosheth who put his trust in a human being and he was let down. You see Rechab and Manna who had placed their trust in their own abilities, their own skills, their own talents, and they end up letting themselves down. But then you see the contrast with David. You see David trusting in God throughout all of this. And you think about it, and it helps us that we've spent all of this time in 1 Samuel and in now into 2 Samuel 
thinking about David's life, because it gives us a richer, broader context to be able to understand that this this isn't just a singular event in which David trusted God. This was a lifestyle. This was the way that he acted. And his trust in God allowed him to throughout all of the years that we've studied in in first Samuel, where he's hiding in caves and trying to escape from Saul and being chased by enemies all over the place. He's still trusting in God. He's trusting in God. Even though he's been anointed, even though he knows that he's going to be the next king, and yet he still refuses to lift his hand against the king's anointed. He still refuses because he's saying, no, that's not my place. If God is the one that's going to do this, if God is the one that's going to make me king, I don't have to do it myself. I don't have to make it happen. God is the one that will work this out. And so I'm going to trust him. And so he has an unshakable confidence in God that things are going to work out. But it's not just sort of this naive burying his head in the sand and ignoring bad things that are happening as the kingdom burns around him. David's just kind of saying, oh, don't worry about it. God's going to work it out. Hmm. Why is everything on fire? No, it's this trusting in God and saying, God, these are the problems. These are the things that are happening to me. And yet, in spite of all of these things, I still am moving forward. I still am trusting in your promises. I still am believing That maybe even though they won't work out on this side of eternity, I'm trusting that moving forward that they will work out. He had a sense that God was always at work, no matter what the circumstances that were going on around him. And his life bears that out. Certainly, David had his share of trouble. David had his share of problems. He wasn't perfect by any means. And I think we've seen that as we've studied his life. But he also had an unshakable confidence in God. And so... The result is that he becomes Israel's most successful king. He was the one that pushed Israel to its largest borders that it ever was. He was the one that had the most military success. God blessed him because he placed his unshakable trust in God. And so the question becomes, what are we trusting in today? Who is the hero of our story? Are we trusting in our skills, our talents, our abilities, our wealth, other people? All of these things that we've seen throughout this passage that don't really work out? Or are we like David? Are we trusting in God? And the thing is that there's plenty of people that are going to get through this life successfully trusting in their skills And their talents and their abilities, you know them, they drive nicer cars than you and I do. They live in bigger homes than you and I do. They have more toys than you and I do. But here's the thing. For what? To what end? For 80 years, maybe 90, 100 years, possibly, if they're lucky. They've invested all of their time. All of their energy and all of these things that will completely fade away and will never last. And if you trust in God, your life is not going to be perfect. Your life is not going to be without trouble. But when you trust in God and when you place your faith in God and have an unshakable trust the same way that David did. And we're going to look at some of the different ways that David outlines this in the Psalms. But when you do that. You understand that there is something greater that this life is pointing towards. This life is not all there is. This life is pointing towards all of eternity. 
And so that allows us to place our trust in God in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the fact that the world tells us all the time that we are foolish for doing this, in spite of the fact that it looks like everybody else is getting ahead. We know that there is an eternal reward that is to be reaped for placing our trust in God. So where do you turn when you get into trouble? What do you do when you come up against some kind of an obstacle? Are you like Ishbosheth? Are you placing your trust in somebody, another person? Are you like Rechab, Banna, coming up with a plan, trying to negotiate your way out of it, trying to get in good, doing whatever it takes to make it happen? Or are you like David, who constantly and consistently relied on God? Proverbs, which was written by Solomon. And I like to think that Part of what the wisdom of Solomon, we know that it came from God, but I I like to think that some of it came from observing his father and seeing this unshakable confidence in God. And Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. For this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. This was the principle that David lived his life through. And we see that played out in the Psalms. I'm going to read several different Psalms, a sampling of the writings of David. And just listen and think about the way that this affected David's life. When you think about all the things that he went through. Think back through all the different hiding in caves and being on the run and being chased like an animal and and Saul stealing his family from him and all these different things that David went through. And then listen, Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I have been saved from my enemies. Psalm 20 verses 6 through 8. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought up to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Psalm 23:4 Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Psalm 25:1 through 3 In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. In Psalm 27, 13 and 14. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. David didn't just write these words. David lived these words. 
And so the challenge for us today is, are we willing to live this out in our lives? I don't know what you're up against today. I have no idea what sort of obstacle you're facing in your life. I have no idea how big your rock wall is. But here's the thing that I do know. I know the God that's holding your rope. And he's not like me, a 140-pound weakling trying to belay somebody that's three times his size. No, God can hold your rope. And if you slip and if you fall, he will catch you. That doesn't mean your life is going to be perfect. That doesn't mean your life is going to be without trouble. But that does mean that if you put your trust and faith in God, you will spend eternity with him no matter what happens in this temporary life. So I don't know what it is that's weighing on your heart. I don't know what it is that's weighing on your mind. But I know the God that's holding your rope and he is big enough to carry you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a God that is worthy of our trust. A God that will not let us slip and fall. A God who wants us to not rely on ourselves, to not rely on other people, but instead to constantly and consistently rely on you. And so I ask this morning, Lord, that you would be with us. Because I know that in my own life it's a struggle. But so many times I want to hold my own rope. I want to be the one. And yet we know that that's a sin. And so I pray that you would help us this morning as we walk out of here. That we would examine our lives. That we would see where it is that we need to trust you. And that we would move forward in surrendering our lives to you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.